As was said earlier, uh, we are uh, journeying through Hebrews as a church, um, but this morning we're taking a small detour uh, through uh, Luke into a parable uh, that he records for us that Jesus taught. Particularly, we are looking at the parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15, 1 through 7. And really this morning, uh, Calvin uh, mentioned this, that we're going to be tackling the issue of acceptance. In our passage this morning, Luke is really going to tell us about two kinds of false acceptance, and then a true form of acceptance, and then uh, how to get that true acceptance. And the reason we're talking about this is because uh, it's really something that we all long for. It's why many of us join teams or organizations or have hobbies, right? Maybe you tried lacrosse one time and felt welcome and you had fun and then they picked it up as a sport, right? Or maybe you've gone rock climbing once and a friend told you about a climbing community and you got involved in a group of people you liked and they embrace you motivate you to keep going and encouraging you. And in fact, I would say that we hope that Christ Church in Milwaukee is this, right? I hope that belonging is occurring at this very moment, that you feel like you belong here, that you're accepted, that we love you, that no matter how you came in this morning, uh, you feel a sense of acceptance and belonging that you might not feel other spaces in the city. Uh, We hope that you feel that you belong, maybe even before you believe. The Bible, from its earliest chapters, it claims that we are created to crave uh, acceptance and connection and intimacy, to be uh, accepted by one another. In fact, in Genesis 2, God looks upon his creation and he uh, pronounces it to not be good. It's not good until the first human relationship. So this morning we're asking the question, how do we find acceptance and belonging, right? How do we find the, that acceptance and that belonging that we seek? It's our big question, how do we find acceptance and belonging? So let's read about it. Uh, this is Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he, has not, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm supposed to say this is the word of God. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now let's pray. Lord, uh, we simply pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so let's dive into our passage uh, this morning as we seek to answer the question, where do we find acceptance? Well, look with me first at verses 1 and 2. Right from the jump, Luke introduces us to two groups of people that are going to show up later in the parable, right? One, the sinner's 
and tax collectors that are represented by the one lost sheep, and the other, the Pharisees and the scribes. Both these groups, right, uh, are, are in that parable, and you'll note as Jesus sums it up in verse 7, from the perspective of heaven, all people fall into essentially one of these two groups. This is what the kingdom is like. This is what the world is like. And you're either like the one lost sheep or the righteous 99. But what does it look like to belong to one of these groups? Let's start by looking at the Pharisees and the scribes. This group of people were well known in the ancient Near East as being very zealous for God's law and generally regarded as, you know, as good people. Uh, Maybe that's why the one detail that Luke provides about these Pharisees and scribes in this story and that prompts uh, Jesus to tell the parable is that they were grumblers, right? This grumbling is the great identifier of the self-righteous, right? What are they grumbling about? Look at me again at verse 2. They complain, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It is difficult for these Pharisees and scribes to comprehend how Jesus could eat, dine, uh, enjoy a table fellowship with these sinners, these tax collectors. He treats them like friends. To put a finer point on it in terms of acceptance, right, these men were threatened by Jesus' intentional inclusion of the tax collectors and sinners. Why? why? Why so threatened by Jesus befriending tax collectors and sinners? Well, because it tears at the very nature of how they belong to their group, right? These scribes and Pharisees, they find their identity in their moral performance, right? And being the right kind of people. And each man finds his worthiness by falsely inflating his own sense of moral superiority. They've earned their place among the elite, and they deserve the prestige that they enjoy for doing so, right? They deserve the pats on the back they give each other. But as Jesus points out in the course of the parable, these 99 are not prized by the shepherd in the same way that the one is, right? They aren't sought after. They don't get a party. They have only one another. And this brings us to our first answer uh, this morning to our question, how do we find acceptance? Well, we can wrongly find it in our goodness, in our moral performance. Here's the problem, though, right? This search for an inner ring of being morally better than everyone else, it's, it's just a game of comparison, right? All self-righteousness is born of comparison. This is why these Pharisees and scribes grumble. By Jesus lifting up those who are below them on the moral totem pole, right, they have no standard by which they can compare themselves. If Jesus says, well, you're all up at the same level, they no longer get to have their inclusive, their exclusive group. And C.S. Lewis, and it's printed in your bulletin, but C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Inner Ring, he brilliantly describes the allure of, like, you know, this room where it happens, being on the inside. And he argues that it's not even about inclusion into the inner ring that we desire. It's not even actually about getting into, like, the, the Pharisees and scribes' inner ring that we really want, What we really want is actually to exclude other people from it, (laughs) right? He writes this, your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is the essence, right? When we talk about being included because we are the right kind of people, Really, the whole point is that there have to be the wrong kind of people. The point is the outsider. 
In other words, like the Pharisees, when we base our acceptance on our resumes and seek out our belonging in the groups of good people or even just the people who believe the right things, we do so with an aim to exclude outsiders, exclude others. This sense of belonging, it's really just an illusion that others don't belong. Now, we've got a sobering question to ask ourselves this morning, especially us as a gathered church. Is this us, right? Is Jesus talking about us? Are are we here this morning because we are the morally good people, right? Maybe you even say like, oh, no, 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 I know that I'm a sinner, unlike all those people out there, <laughs> right? And now, you're, now you've done it again, right? You've landed yourself right back into the same situation where it's the other people out there. They're the problem. They're, they're the sinners. They're, I'm better than them, right? Because I know that I'm not, <laughs> right? How about that for a humility brain twister, right? The more that we find that we are the humble ones, we are not. We in here, we, we have found the truth. The truth is that Jesus is Lord and that if you believe that this morning, that's a good thing. You know, that might even mean that you know right and wrong. You might know that you sometimes don't always know right from wrong, right? But even correct theology, what Jesus is warning in this parable is that even a correct theology can turn us into a group of holier-than-thou elitists. That church can be that kind of dead gathering where people pat each other on the back even for being the kind of people who don't pat each other on the back. We should repent of this wherever we find it in our hearts and become like the one who can repent. Now, maybe you've been sitting here so far and you've been, you know, you're here this morning and you're like, yep, this is why I normally don't come to church because of that, because of this very thing, right? This is why I don't go to church. Christians are a bunch of self-righteous, you know, moralistic killjoys. Maybe... Uh, there's even someone here today, you know, you look at and you go, man, yeah, that's this, I hope this person's listening over there, right? Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Luke also describes a second group of people whom you might identify with more readily, right? Tax collectors and sinners. To these people, those outside the religious moral group of their day, the Pharisees, uh, you know, their their self-righteousness, the scribes and the Pharisees, their self-righteousness, it smacks of hypocrisy, right, and power-grubbing, power-hungriness. This outsider sentiment is summed up by Mandolin Orange Song. It's called Gospel Shoes, also in your bulletin. It says this, Gospel shoes are laced with shackles and chains, fitted for the poor runners of the race. Now every hand is folded in the shape of a gun. Target's ever-changing, but the war, it rages on. For the outsiders, religion is just an excuse for a bunch of people to target and burden the rest of society with their morals. It makes sense, then, how Luke describes them, right? Look with me at verse 1. Luke notes that these people were drawing near to Jesus, right? Someone who would accept them, who didn't point the gun at them, who didn't say, you're wrong, you're wrong, and just use a moral, you know, bludgeon to hit them with, right? Of course he could have, but he doesn't. He's gathering them in and treating them like friends. While the scribes and Pharisees grumble amongst themselves, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus in droves. Now, before we look at what that means, that they were drawing near to Jesus, I want to make a note about what verse 1 does not say. Uh, Note that it does not say that they were drawing near to one another. The thing that's attractive to them is not that they get to be included in this outside group. It's that they get to be included with Jesus, that they're headed towards him. 
There's a sense in which this kind of acceptance can also happen, the drawing to one another, right? Just like with the uh, scribes and Pharisees, sometimes uh, people can uh, join affinity groups and find acceptance in actually their sinfulness. There are plenty of communities that center themselves around what the Bible would label sin. In fact, these communities often become necessary, right? In order to ignore the conviction that, that, that rises up in our hearts about our own uh, poor behavior and our own sin, right? You get a bunch of people together and we all tell each other that what we're doing isn't that bad. Uh, this happened in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, we read from Jer- Jeremiah 6 earlier in which Jeremiah describes the sad state of God's people. They've run after other gods. They have worshipped other things, have put uh, their desires for sex and money and power ahead of how God says to treat those things. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, there arises a group who uh, call themselves prophets and they tell the people that they're not doing anything wrong. God would never judge you. God doesn't care what you do. The truth is that, like, if you're just living whatever life you want to live, if you are following your truth, then, like, God, God doesn't, he's not, he, we're his chosen people. He loves you unconditionally, so it doesn't matter. Anything that you want to do is totally fine. And they cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they were happy to deaden the sense of guilt that the people ought to have felt over their sin and to celebrate what was evil. People love them for it, right? People always love someone who will tickle your ears, who will tell you what you want to hear, right? You ever have that friend that you don't go to? <laughs> when, you want, like, when you don't want to hear the truth, you, like, you call up the friend that you know will tell you what you want to hear, right? Like, there's a reason we do this. And it's because, and it's our second answer to our question this morning, sometimes we wrongly find our acceptance in our sin, right? We look to other people who struggle with the same things or whatever, and we kind of excuse ourselves based on a collective understanding that, like, we're going to overlook this one, right? This same thing happens today, right? Modern society. Uh, I just learned uh, this week what the, what the phrase drink Wisconsinably means. Have you all ever heard, the, like, do you know what drink response, like, it's on a lot of uh, like beer commercials, alcohol commercials. There'll be a little tagline that says it's become customary to have a little tagline that says something like drink responsibly. Right? But uh, if you've heard the phrase drink Wisconsinably, I thought that this was just like a fun idea uh, of, of endorsing the idea that people in Wisconsin do drink but within their limits and they use designated drivers. Like drink, you know, it's so interchangeable that you can even say like drink Wisconsinably. Right? But I found out this week, some of my students informed me, uh, that this is actually a dig at the idea of drinking responsibly, that like in Wisconsin, we don't do that. Uh, we, there's some people who drink responsibly, and then in Wisconsin, we drink Wisconsinably. And that means that we overindulge, and it's an excuse. And the idea, I think, behind the t-shirts, and even I think there's a bar that bears its name, is to minimize the necessity of using alcohol properly how the Bible would, would instruct us, right? Collectively accepting its misuse allows us to disregard its proper use. In the biblical story, alcohol is a gift to be stewarded and enjoyed because it's given by God. Think of Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15. He says this, the psalmist says this, you, can ca- you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is the biblical uh, idea of feasting to gladden and strengthen the heart, not to dull it with binge drinking and poor decision making. 
right? It would, it would be a mistake to misread Jesus in this parable as saying that acceptance comes through disregarding our sin, disregarding morality, throwing it out altogether. This is why Jesus describes such people as lone sheep who have lost their way. Look at me at verse 5. Jesus says, sinners of all varieties, whether it's sexual or substance abuse or lying or greed or pride or envy or gossip, they're all like sheep who have gone so far away from the truth, who have wandered so far from their shepherd, that even if the shepherd were to find them, they'd have to lay, be laid upon his shoulders and carried back. They couldn't walk. This is how far our sin takes us from God's love. Right? Jesus is not glossing over the reality of sin. In fact, he's put this sheep in this parable to say that like, when we sin, we wander to such a place that there is no hope of rescue by any other, not even ourselves. And this means that belonging to groups like these that promise you acceptance and belonging based upon diminishing the reality of sin, man, they're lying to you. Those are hollow relationships at best, right? They've They're founded upon lying to you and flattering you instead of real friendship, right? Real friendship always requires asking hard questions, speaking hard truths, and endurance and perseverance through hard things. The friend who tells you, oh, you can confide in me, right? It's no big deal. You're just venting, right? As a minimization of your gossip, they're not a friend to you at all, actually. Whether it's endorsing alcohol abuse or sexual lifestyle or political position or whatever it is, if it's contrary to God's ethics, Jesus calls this what it is. It's lostness. It's sin. But Jesus doesn't leave us lost, does he? That's not how the parable ends. Not, and the sheep wandered off and then he left him alone and nobody found the way, right? Look at me at verse 4. Jesus doesn't leave us lost. Jesus asks a rhetorical question. What man, having lost a sheep wouldn't seek after it until he found it. This is the hope for all of humanity, that God does not leave us to our brokenness. Despite the lack of business sense it is actually to leave 99 sheep unattended for a lost one, this is how God comes to us in Jesus. Now, friends, he searches high and low on every mountaintop and in every valley looking for you. He'll walk miles and miles with no end in sight to try to find you. He's never lost a sheep yet. The truth is that he's batting a thousand here. He's a good shepherd and he who is seeking you this morning, he will find you. Whether you've been a Christian for years or, you know, maybe this is the first day you're considering it, God will pursue you. You cannot actually outrun his love. There's no amount of lostness that you, could, that you could possibly throw into your life. There's no amount of sin that you could commit that Jesus will not go track you down, love you, and bring you back to himself. And then when he does so, he'll throw a party. Right? The truth is, uh, if you, it, it, all it requires is that you stop, that you let him find you, that you uh, turn around. Uh, the Bible calls this repentance that you would leave those things, leave those communities, leave the self-righteousness, all of it behind, and let the shepherd come to you. Let him love you. Let him rejoice over you and invite all of heaven to sing over you. Right? Can you imagine Christ's face this morning? Right? Can you imagine him seeking you, welcoming you home? Is it beautiful to you? 
Is it glorious? Despite all the other things, despite all the false things that try to tell you that you're good enough, despite all the things that you look to to tell yourself that you're good enough, that you're accepted, that you're good, Jesus will look at you exactly as you are, come and find you, put you on his shoulders, and carry you home. This is our final answer and lasting answer to, the, to this morning's question, how do we find acceptance? We find it in the joy of our shepherd, Jesus. Uh, whenever I was in college, um, I worked at a summer camp. It's where Maddie and I met called Camp Timberlake for Boys. And it's in the mountains of North Carolina. And I'd never been there before, but my first weekend there, um, I had off. And I decided I wanted to go on a hike. And it was before everybody got there. And so the camp director actually just told me about this trail called Rainbow Trail. And he had just one, he was going to drop me off and then he was going to pick me up. It was a big loop. He said, I'll come back and pick you up uh, when you call me in a couple hours or an hour or so, because I like to trail running. And uh, I said, yeah, I'm going to go on a hike. Maybe I'll run or whatever. And he said, yeah, just call me when you get back. He said, there's just one thing you have to remember. There's going to be a fork at one point when you get to the trail. And if you go left on that fork, you're going to end up going to Mount Mitchell, which is the highest point in uh, the eastern U.S., right? And he's like, you're going to do that. And that's about a 22-mile <laughs> like, uh, you know, walk to Mount Mitchell, and there's, like, no access point in between there, so, like, make sure that you stay right when you go on the fork. I did not stay right when I went on the fork. I went left, because I thought that there wasn't a fork, like, because it's very bad directions. Like, one split this way, and then the other one went this way. Like, it was going already, and so I was like, that's not a fork. That's, like, a diversion, so I'm not going to go that way. It was a mistake that I made. Um, And so what ends up happening is, uh, I keep wandering. I keep thinking, like, I thought this was a loop. And I keep going. I keep waiting for the loop to happen. I'm like, maybe I don't know how many miles this thing is. My phone has lost service, right? And so I'm, like, wondering, like, how to, where am I? And I, I'm out there for a couple of hours. And uh, I realize at some point I get service again that's, like, you know, uh, and I, real, I, like, look at my GPS, and I am miles away from where I'm supposed to be back at the trail and I think to myself, maybe I can, you know, uh, I can find a diversion way home or whatever. Like, I don't, but I don't know my way. And so ultimately, I just decide, you know what would be best? I'm going to call my camp director and tell him, like, I'm lost. <laughs> that I don't really know where I am. And that if he could help me, like, because I'm on this trail to Mount Mitchell, if he could help me get back the fastest way. Uh, and I'm worried that if I go back the way I came, I won't find it. And here's the good news this morning, right? that we all find ourselves in a similar situation that we can't really fix like our issues. That the truth is that all of us here this morning walk in with uh, a fair amount of sin and brokenness in our lives and that God delights in you stopping the nonsense of like driving to Mount Mitchell or uh, hiking to Mount Mitchell and to call him and say, I'm lost. To call him and say, I'm lost. To tell him, I can't clean myself up. I can't, I can't do this myself. I'm going to acknowledge that like all the ways that I've lied to myself about how I'm not that bad off or how I'm not as bad off as those other people, right? That all that's a smokescreen. He longs to hear from us this morning that we need him. We need him to be like this good shepherd in the passage. And the beautiful thing is, if we do that, right? He says, if you will repent, the last verse here, right? Uh, 99 persons who need no repentance, if you will repent, he longs to come to you and to, and to bathe you in his blood 
right, that he paid for all your sins on the cross and invite you to new life with him, to be part of his fold, to be one of his sheep that he takes care of and cares for. Christians, this morning, come back to your first love. Come back to that shepherd who loves you and cares for you. Tell him uh, the things that you don't want to tell him. Invite him to love you in the ways that you're afraid to be loved. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I do thank you for this parable, for telling it to the scribes and Pharisees who were right in their own eyes, did all the right things, said all the right things, um, but really didn't know you. And you also told it uh, to the tax collectors and sinners who also needed to hear from you that they were like lost sheep, but that you are a shepherd who looks for them and loves them despite all their shortcomings. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your cross that makes it possible. Um, And we pray that you would uh, welcome us home uh, once more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.